listening to the Bible 126 show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone. This is the first in a series of podcast conversations that I hope to conduct into the foreseeable future. And on this maiden voyage, I am delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Joe Ellen, to talk about transhumanism. Many of you will recognize Joe from Steve Bannon's War Room podcast. Aside from being Mr. Bannon's correspondent on the topic of transhumanism, Joe is a contributing writer for several prominent publications, including The Federalist, The American Spectator, and The American Thinker, to name a few. Joe will also be joining me as a guest speaker at the Birthright Conference that I am hosting this year from the 6th through the 7th of May in Nashville, Tennessee, where we will be discussing transhumanism, aliens, UFOs, and Bible prophecy. Tickets to the conference are now on sale at a 20% discount. I expect these tickets to sell out fast. So if you're thinking about attending, hurry over to my website, timothyalbrino.com, or follow the link in the description of this video to secure your tickets today. Joe, you recently published a captivating and amusing article with the provocative title, Transhumanism is Satanism with a Brain Chip. I should like to begin by reading an excerpt from the article. Technology has inspired a dark religion obsessed with power. This is mechanical sorcery for the modern adept on the go. Through its miracles, the naked ape is granted clairvoyance, weather apps, telepathy, texting, remote viewing, surveillance cameras, deadly curses, autonomous drones, and even tantric rites, sex bots. Transhumanists are reaching for loftier powers, though. Virgin birth from artificial wombs, virtual astral planes, sentient social robots, and deified artificial intelligence. Time magazine's Transhuman of the Year, Elon Musk, warned that the runaway advance of artificial intelligence is, quote, summoning the demon. Worried that Homo sapiens will soon be overshadowed, Musk is pouring money into an implantable brain-computer interface, Neuralink, so we may commune with this AI deity. Looking far down the road, the most ambitious transhumanists long to transcend death itself through radical life extension or even mind uploading, the replication of your soul's pattern in immortal silicon. It's like Instagram, only forever. Anytime the gods demand sacrifice and devotion, transhumanists demand immediate gratification. If that means storming the gates of heaven with brain implants and hoverboards, then so be it. Joe, in your article, you go on to cite the transhumanist philosopher Max Moore, Aleister Crowley, Anton LaVey, and even the Satanic Temple. 
What is this, what is the association between these self-styled Satanists and transhumanism? You know, uh, Timothy, I think the the connection is implicit uh, in some cases, so that the connection say, between Anton Lavey and transhumanism is tangential. Uh, Lavey famously advocated the creation of android companions uh, he had himself uh, created a, a small cadre of uh, you know semi android companions around his home and until the end of his life in the the late 90s he advocated pretty uh, seriously using artificial humans uh, as surrogates for the satanist desire for gratification right selfish impulses, sexual impulses, this sort of thing. Uh, and his successors discussed it as well. Uh, they were actually uh, pretty triumphant when the real doll took off, and uh, they associated that really with the sort of uh, conceptual uh, templates that LaVey had put down. But then when you're talking about uh, Aleister Crowley, uh, and especially as the, the, the sort of occult threads culminate in Timothy Leary and uh, a lot of the more, you know, occult inflected techno music, you start to see direct inspiration, a sort of you know, cultural lineage going back to Crowley and uh, ending, you know, today. Uh, but really, one of the flashpoints was Timothy Leary. I mean, at one point, Timothy Leary claimed to be the reincarna reincarnation of Aleister Crowley. Uh, you know, he, uh, in his famous article, um, it's uh, uh, Digital Polytheism, uh, Load and Run Technopaganism, I believe is the title. Or, or, or maybe I have that backwards. Um, it's, a, it's a lengthy, wordy title. But uh, he argues very clearly that uh, the personal computer is the realization of the ancient alchemical aspirations uh, to fuse opposites and to gain power for oneself. And in particular, uh, he traced the personal computer back in a somewhat artful way uh, to Aleister Crowley's uh, ritual magic formulas. And, uh, you know, in particular, the realization of one's will, the personal computer allows for the realization of personal uh, uh, uh personal drives of any sort and uh, you know under crowley's uh, paradigm without any moral constraint and i think that leary would probably somewhat agree with that um but then you know maybe more importantly the sort of uh reflection of powers that were promised by the early ritual magicians and alchemists uh that were realized then through technology as, as listed in the article telekinesis and this is largely drawing from leary uh telekinesis clairvoyance precognition uh, telepathy all of these sorts of powers are realized through technology. And I think that that strain in general, whether it references back directly to Crowley or Leary, that strain of thought is very prominent among transhumanists. So, uh, you know, maybe one of the more important figures that I discuss in the article is H.R. Giger. And, you know, he's a visual artist. He's not a philosopher. Uh, in one of the collections that I have of his, Leary actually wrote the foreword. And uh, Giger's work, uh, more than anything I've ever seen in person, embodies the dark sort of self-motivated, you know, satanic materialist 
uh, impulse behind technological development and human fusion with technology. He does it very, you know, very honest way. He's not uh, in any way concealing his motives or concealing his inspiration. And it is quite overtly satanic. Now, the article itself is some mixture of tongue-in-cheek and being dead serious. I'm dead serious about that connection, uh, but at, at the same time, it's a matter really of essence and not necessarily of particularities, so that most transhumanists would never call themselves Satanists or really want to associate with it in any way. They probably think it's as superstitious as Christianity or any other religion. But I think that you can definitely generalize from the sorts of impulses that are, you know, made explicit by Max Moore, the arc transhumanist, uh, and also tie that to some of the more essential messages that you find in alchemy and the occult. Who is Max Moore? Because you have some incredible quotations from Max Moore in your article, quotations that I had not seen before. In fact, let me let me read one of those quotations and then tell us who Max Moore is and and how many people in the transhumanist movement agree with him? So uh, you have in your article here that um, you cite an essay of his entitled In Praise of the Devil, published in Atheist Notes. And this is, again, this is the transhumanist Max Moore, who published this in 1991. This article is written in praise of Satan, Lucifer, the devil, or whatever you want to call him. I am quite serious on a symbolic level in what I write. But my statements praising the devil and attacking Christianity, God, and Jesus are not to be taken as implying the real existence of any of these supposed beings. Lucifer means light bringer, and this should begin to clue us in to his symbolic importance. Lucifer is the embodiment of reason, of intelligence, of critical thought. He stands against the dogma of God and all other dogmas. He stands for the exploration of new ideas and new perspectives in the pursuit of truth. So, Joe, who is Max Planck? Uh, I'm sorry, Max Planck. That's a different discussion. <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's a discussion on quantum physics. Who is Max Moore? And, uh, and how many people agree with him? How many people are in his stream of transhumanism? Max Moore is one of the most influential writers in the transhumanist movement. I would say that, especially among uh, younger transhumanists today that I read, uh, not many of them agree with him wholeheartedly. He was really a firebrand. Uh, I disagree with his premises. I disagree with most of his conclusions. Um, but I have a sort of grudging respect for the guy because, you know, from the beginning, uh, he basically came out of the gates with middle fingers flying, and I think that that was uh, the the impetus behind his essay in praise of the devil. But what you know, in my mind, he's he's both delusional and he's playing with fire. I and mean, he's talking about Lucifer as a symbol, and he is tearing into God and Jesus as symbolic realities. And while I agree that those symbolic realities are sort of windows into the deeper elements that exist in the universe, uh, for him, it's all a vacuum after that. And it's just a matter of what a human being can do to harness this sort of imagery, to harness human intellect, to harness human critical thought uh, in service of one's own power. 
Um, you know, I would say that on a very broad level, transhumanism is a materialist inversion of all spiritual aspiration globally, uh, Christianity in particular. But I, I think that, you know, all traditional religions seek some degree of sacrifice within the soul, within the individual, uh, to a greater force, to a force that's always portrayed as good, however different it may be from religion to religion. Max Moore and many transhumanists in general completely reject that. They, they begin with a materialist premise. Nature is all there is and is sufficient unto itself. We are floating uh, quite uh, haplessly on a dirt ball on, you know, in the backwater of the Milky Way galaxy. We're all, you know, doomed to die and death inevitably means oblivion. So with Moore in particular, especially with his Alcor Life Extension Foundation, uh, which he is still, he's the uh, president emeritus and has been a leading figure there. Uh, his quest, and by and large, the quest shared by many transhumanists is to stave off death indefinitely, to make death a choice. Uh, he, in a, in a recent conference that I, I, I viewed you know, via the internet, I couldn't make it because of uh, certain restrictions to get across the border to Spain. But um, you know, he was talking about living two and 3,000 years. And it's astonishing to me that anyone would be so delusional. I mean, I know that technology is advancing rapidly, and I know that more than likely life, uh, you know, life expectancy will be extended dramatically in the next 50 years if everything progresses as it has. But I, that really highlights the sort of insane aspiration uh, that is boiling in the depths of the transhumanist mind. You know, the notion of a 3,000 year lifespan beginning, you know, in the, the, the 50s or 60s, uh, it, it's, it's beyond me. Now, what, uh, Ray Kurzweil obviously is, is, is even more ambitious with his predictions. So, but yeah, that's Max Moore. You know, if I could bring up one more thing about him, I, I know I've gone perhaps over long, but, you know, Max Moore, um, you know, it was really the originator of the concept of extropy. And extropy, you know, is positioned as the opposite of entropy. And the cosmic vision of the purely naturalist mind is that the universe is running down. You know, eventually we'll be down to just a fraction above zero Kelvin, at which point everything is oblivion. And Max Moore, uh, you know, harnessed this notion of extropy as a materialist means to overcome entropy. You know, I would say that one of the hallmarks of transhumanism, if not the hallmark, is an inability to reconcile oneself to death in the material realm. I think that's very insightful. Um, but don't you don't you think that that Max Moore was just saying the quiet part out loud? Yes. When he was acknowledging, you know, when he was acknowledging that this at, at the core of transhumanism, what you have is, in fact, Luciferianism. And again, Luciferianism is, from my perspective, from a Christian perspective, um, Luciferianism is the inversion of the gospel of Christ. So, um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, Joe, but um, Lucifer, Luciferians view the God of the Bible, who they call Adonai. They see him as the villain. And so when they look at the, the story of the, of, uh, of the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve and, and the serpent, they see Adonai as being the slave master that Adonai enslaved mankind, and that 
that the serpent was the benefactor of mankind. He was the friend of man, the dragon, the serpent, and he was enlightening mankind. So he wanted to break the chains. He wanted to unshackle humanity and, and confer his wisdom and his understanding to mankind. And I believe that um, from the Luciferian perspective, the, the, the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal in the Luciferian perspective is to, uh, is to apotheosize, is to reach apotheosis. And apotheosis means to become deified, to become like God. You know, the, uh, the connection you, you make uh, with the serpent in the garden, I mean, uh, you know, that really... I've never really been able to trace a direct lineage. I know that a lot of kind of Luciferian or occultist types uh, draw on the Gnostic tradition and have since before the discovery of the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, but, you know, in those Gospels that have been d discovered at Najmadi and, and elsewhere, um, there is that uh, strong narrative that, that, you know, that that kind of inverted narrative of the the Eden story. And it, I, I guess that really, again, highlights how ancient that notion is, you know, the, the Gnostic concept that, you know, Jehovah is the evil one and, and created the world incomplete or, or, or flawed. And that, you know, the, the serpent, in fact, represented what would eventually be Jesus incarnate or the, you know, the divinity, uh, depending on the, the text. Uh, it, it highlights how ancient that really is. Uh, you know, one finds certain associations all the way back into, you know, e Egyptian funerary rites, um, however loose those connections may be. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, transhumanism is not a new thing philosophically, but the technologies that have come into play in the last century, century and a half, or maybe you could uh, really look at the, the acceleration after the, the computer took off in the 90s, transhumanism provides both actual capabilities for enacting one's will, so to speak, in reality, uh, but maybe more importantly, it, it puts, it allows for far more dramatic dreams to come to, uh, you know, fruition culturally. Uh, tons and tons of people believe Elon Musk when he says that artificial intelligence will soon surpass human capabilities uh, or that, you know, tons of young men, I think, probably would be willing to take the chip back here. Or maybe maybe the best one would be right here on the pineal. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it's astonished me more than uh, really more than the technological progress itself. It's astonished me the extent to which you know, culturally, these norms have been accepted as, you know, fantasies in some sense, but they have formed a, a replacement for traditional religious worldviews. It, it is adopted at ver to varying degrees by varying people. But, you know, when I think about transhumanism, I, I try to think of three levels. I think about that aspiration, right? the aspiration to create a conscious, a sentient artificial intelligence, or the aspiration to perfect the human genome. Um, and, and then just behind that, uh, you know, you've got the, the doctors and scientists and lab technicians, you know, millions of people 
who are working on these things with most without probably any strong concept uh, that you would associate with transhumanism, or if they are, if they do think that way, it's periodic and it's, you know, maybe within their own sphere. And these people by and large are just working away, trying to better human life. They're trying to help people live longer. Uh, They're trying to increase communication capabilities, these sorts of things. Uh, And then you have the, the corporate and governmental application of these things and it's you know i i I guess you could place that somewhere between the actual capabilities and the aspiration Uh, but that's really where the rubber hits the road so when google is literally siphoning up all of your personal information through your emails or through your searches and feeding that to its artificial intelligence system that system may or may not become conscious but the fact that you're being surveilled you know basically inside and out for that purpose is very real and all the programmers that worked on that may not have wanted some sort of technocratic dystopia but that's where that's where these aspirations become real ultimately is through you know the corporate initiatives or the government initiatives that bring it out into the public um, if there's a moment, you know, I, I, just to explain to the audience my, my perspective on this or how I see it, you know, there's many, many ways you can, you know, slice a, a pig up, but uh, I, I have five categories that I examine transhumanism through. The, the first is, I guess initially I should say, all of them are rooted in evolutionary theory for the most part. Uh, that basically accepts Darwinian evolution, uh, but there's also a strong element of you know cultural evolution on top of the biological evolution. You know the the notion that ideas or technologies or inventions, uh, you know cultural modes, the idea that those are also under selection and are you know evolving by way of many of the same or similar processes that biological evolution evolved through a really great paradigm is um, max tegmark's life 3.0 so that life 1.0 is the biological substrate that leads up to human beings and then after human beings you have the creation of life 2.0 the cultural mode Um, And that cultural mode has evolved in this viewpoint basically for the last 200,000 years, let's say, with a rapid acceleration with agriculture and even more rapid acceleration post-industrial revolution. And then you have life 3.0, which comes at the cusp of that cultural evolution, which is artificial life, you know, life, digital life, life in silicon. And it's this notion that the intelligence that is being in many ways realized and realized uh, in reality, I mean, this is real artificial intelligence. People are, you know, snicker at it sometimes. The advanced artificial intelligence systems are astonishing. They may not be gods and they may not be conscious, but the their abilities to recognize novel patterns is, uh, it, it has an uncannily lifelike sort of feel to it. So when Tegmark talks about life 3.0, he's literally talking about a new form of life that will be created by human beings on the planet. And so the five avenues, and I'll go through these quickly, the five avenues that I, that I explore this through, number one is eugenics. And I, you know, I, I've, I've shied away from the term, but the more I've thought about it, that's really the only way you can conceive of it because it, it's the, you know, it has direct 
um, lineage with you know Galton and Davin Charles Davenport and the originators of the eugenics movement, who were by and large liberal, uh, as we would conceive of it today. And, you know, transhumanists are obsessed with this notion of, you know, until at least those who, you know, believe the body has any use until the, you know, super intelligence takes over, that they're obsessed with longevity and they're obsessed with, you know, perfecting the human form at the genetic level, uh, to, to increase intelligence, to increase beauty, to increase strength, all of the classic hallmarks of the eugenics movement. And that also applies on the cultural level of evolution so that transhumanists in general are looking to create optimal cultural modes that will survive. They believe in perpetuity. You know, they believe that till the very last second when the universe runs out of steam and the, the height of that is artificial life. The second is neuroenhancement and, you know, neuroenhancement ranges from, you know, supplements to increase your cognition, uh, to exercises to increase your cognition, to devices to increase your cognition and your sensory reach. Um, and it's, you know, all the way down to, you know, some of the more extreme measures, uh, such as, you know, deep brain stimulation in order to, uh, you know, increase one's cognition, which actually shows some promise. And it goes back to kind of that eugenics notion. They are obsessed with intelligence and intellect. And so it's to be increased at, at all costs. I mean, you could arguably say that the metaverse, um, you know, the, the loftiest aspirations of virtual reality falls under this is this notion that you will be able to have kind of, you know, superhuman sensory capabilities so that you can see in augmented reality, you know, information overlaid on an otherwise, you know, kind of dead and uninforming world. Um, and then virtual reality itself is, you know, the capacity to perfect human experience, to enhance one's neurological state, to peak levels of pleasure. Uh, the third, you know, bionics is bringing that the biodigital convergence is bringing that into the body through chips, through sensors. Uh, you know, the, the the loftiest fantasy is to have actual robotic limbs that are more powerful than a human limb, or you know, the Neuralink or any other sort of brain computer interface that's implanted to give you superhuman intelligence. And that's really, you know, the the center of cyborg culture that's already happening now, but they dream of in these incredibly sort of, uh, you know, science fiction tinged uh, delusional ways. Uh, the, the fourth is the, the concept of, uh, you know, robotics taking over human capacities out in the physical world. So that's anything from manufacturing to any other sort of workhorse robot that takes up human labor and leads to, in their mind, you know, a, a post-scarcity world. Uh, and maybe the most important element in that is the social robot, that interface, that direct interface that human beings can have with an artificial intelligence system through, you know, a, a human-like robot that you can relate to. But behind that is, you know, something far more etheric, you know, something more powerful, which leads us to the fifth sort of pillar or vector, you know, after eugenics, neuroenhancement, bionics, and robotics is uh, artificial intelligence itself, in particular, artificial general intelligence. And, uh, in the, and again, in the, the most uh, aggressive predictions, artificial super intelligence. 
And that concept, the concept of a silicon-based digital mind that is in some way equivalent to a human or even animal mind uh, that is conscious, that is capable of feeling, that is capable of, you know, extraordinary superhuman uh, intellectual feats. And, you know, eventually in the, the most dramatic sort of narratives, such as, say, Ray Kurzweil's singularity narrative, eventually this mind will become so overpowering that it will begin converting all usable matter in the universe into computronium so that its consciousness, its reach can spread out from the Milky Way forward, where either it'll take over the entire universe or, or maybe it'll meet other super intelligences and begin competing like amoebas in space. Um, but, you know, those... Those windows, for me, it gives me an insight into, because there's so many different transhumanists, right? There's so many different schools of thought. There's so many different people who fall under transhumanist sort of uh, ideological umbrellas that wouldn't call themselves transhumanist. But as you look at those different uh, elements and you look at the corporations and the individuals and the inventions that are occurring right now uh, that, that drive them, I think, it, it, for me anyway, it, it gives a, a, a fairly holistic spread as to what transhumanists are out to accomplish. And it also gives categories to, you know, to see what the actual achievements are, technical achievements are, that are leading at greater or you know, lesser speeds towards those goals. That's a very useful way to categorize uh, these different elements of transhumanism. Um, uh, but I would, I'm wondering where, where nanotechnology is going to fall in, in terms of these categories, because the nanotechnology, you know, we heard, a, I, I feel like we were hearing a lot about it some years ago, five, 10 years ago. And then, and, and suddenly I'm not hearing so much, or maybe I'm just not reading the right articles or, um, or following the, 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 the right transhumanists or futurists. But um, what are the developments in nanotechnology? And because nanotechnology is very interesting, it, 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 it's, it's a stream of, of, of technology all by itself, but it has application in so many other of these technologies that are developing um, concurrent with it. So where, where are we with nanotechnology? How do you see that merging into, the, into this transhumanist panorama? You know, uh, like I say, there's many ways to slice up a pig, so it's kind of arbitrary where you, you, you stick uh, each post-it note on the wall. But, you know, I, I, I think of nanotechnology just as an extension of robotics, uh, you know, beginning with the ideas of Eric Drexler and, you know, just going forward from there. Um, you know, I, I, the most impressive nanotechnology that I've uh, come across in the last, say, six, seven months, and mostly this has been some of its old news, actually, uh, but it's mainly been because people are constantly hitting me up, asking me what to do about the nanobots in the vaccine. Right. And um, I'm working on a piece right now. Uh, the working piece is um, uh, the vax bots, uh, easy to imagine, difficult to prove. And the reason it's so easy to imagine you know, DARPA has been funding these sorts of projects, uh, you know, 
consistently since the brain computer interface, especially since the 60s. Uh, but they've moved into nanotechnology and there are a number of projects that they're funding which seek to use small microscopic mm-hmm. robots, swarms of them, uh, to alter human consciousness. They would migrate to the brain and be con- controlled through electromagnetic uh, you know, patterns that, that would allow them to basically hijack the neurons and either change emotional states, change cognitive states. At the, you know, Ray Kurzweil discusses this a lot. Uh, you know, his hope is that eventually it will be so exacting that you can you know, realize virtual realities through nanobots in your brain. Um, the, you know, uh, Neuralink's co-founder, his name evades me at the moment, but uh, he has similar sorts of ideas like that, largely uh, geared around larger uh, uh, hardware. But so uh, there's the DARPA funded projects to, you know, that openly, I mean, there's not like a secret. They overtly seek to use microscopic robots in your brain to, you know, alter your consciousness and your abilities. Um, but there's also, you know, on a, I guess on a more nuts and bolts level, uh, a, a great, you know, which is relatively speaking, um, an impressive study out of uh, Rice University where they're using nanobots to, you know, hijack the brains of, fr- of flies, fruit flies more than likely. And uh, it shows pretty, you know, it shows great promise in the flies. They're able to, you know, locate the proper neurons, activate them, deactivate them. Um, you know, with they, they call it in a non-invasive process. So instead of having to stick a chip in your brain, you're using uh, nanobots that have been ejected into your veins and are floating around your system, uh, it, it, you know, in order to alter consciousness. So, uh, and or, they have, or yeah, alter and ability. There's serious medical applications too implicated with the, with the with the nanobots. I mean, they I've I've read articles about uh, the aspirations to create these nanobots, um, which for people who don't know are are and correct me if I'm wrong, Joe. They 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 envision them being the size of cells. And being able to smaller, move around much, much, much smaller than cells. Yes, yeah, right. So, so yeah, the size of cells are much smaller. To be able to 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 roam around your body and repair your cells, um, to to attack cancer cells, to get to, um, you know, to do all kind of maintenance uh, inside your body. Um, but obviously, the 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 big concern with nanobots is, you know, you people, somebody would could interface with those nanobots remotely. And have them do other things also inside of your body. They're just little machines. They're 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 as you said, it, it does cross over with robotics. They're little robots that are that are um, uh, that are moving throughout your anatomy, doing different functions. So uh, there there's a real concern that people have with nanobots being. You know, there's a whole lot of talk out there right now uh, about those nanobots that you you mentioned in in the vax. Um, uh, being able to be um, amplified or, or triggered or um, yeah. turned on, switched on, basically by by uh, by five um, G, I think is what the conspiracy is. Um, and uh, I don't believe that that's the case. I'm, I don't subscribe to the nanobots thing with the with uh, the with the vaccine. Um, however, I can envision a situation in the future in which if somebody willingly takes these nanobots. Um, and has these things roaming around their bodies, uh, patrolling their their you know their their vascular system or whatever. Um, 
it wouldn't it's not difficult to imagine a, a scenario in which those nanobots can be hijacked even hacked i mean even my god i mean we have china hacking into our our most um our most critical systems here in the united states we're getting we're getting uh we're getting cyber attacks every day by china and russia so but people you know loads of people walking around the earth uh filled with nanobots sounds like a really really bad idea on one in, in, on one hand, on the other hand, it sounds like there's a lot of promise there for medical application. I mean, if you can instead of taking chemotherapy, for example, and and basically killing all of your cells together, if you can swallow a pill or get an injection of nanobots that can specifically target target and only target those cancer cells, well, uh, that's a lot, that's a lot better than nuking your whole body with uh, or nuking large portions of your body with radiation. So there's 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 almost unimaginable medical application, but then there's also unimaginable application for depopulation, for, for warfare. Um, uh, the, one of the big concerns that, that I have regarding, and, and this is not science fiction. I mean, we're not, we're not musing about something that's, that's, that's for all intents and purposes in, impractical and impossible. This is something that is coming in the future. The, the, you the, know, uh, just, uh, you know, real quickly, uh, uh, my, um, advisor at, at Boston University, a very brilliant man, whatever our disagreements may be. Uh, I'd asked him what he thought at one point uh, earlier uh, in the year in, in regard to advanced technology, what really is the cutting edge as far as the sci-fi wing? And he said nanotechnology. You know, He's far more on top of that element than I am, for sure. And uh, you know, he was fairly convinced within the next few years we'll be seeing people injected with nanobot swarms for the purposes you're talking about in particular cancer and 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 cell and tissue regeneration yeah and 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 one of the real concerns is because nanobots are so small they could be aerosolized and people yes. could be breathing them in i mean you could they could they could uh you know they could aerosolize them from a from a commercial jet flying over your house and you could be consuming, you could be inadvertently consuming these nanobots, uh, these uh, nanobots, uh, breathing them in through your mouth and nose. You don't even have to be injected with them. Once they're inside of your body, they're like, you know, I mean, they're little robots, and and they're robots that you know have functions built into them, and they have certain functions that they that they can do and that they've been designed to do. But they can also be controlled. They can swarm together. They can they can do all kinds of things that um, they weren't. Uh, initially intended to do. So what I'm saying is, it's it's almost like we are we're making we're going to be making our bodies, uh, subjecting our bodies to the same kind of security concerns that our computers are are subjected to right now. The hacking that we're seeing um, happening, you know, in in modern warfare, cybernetic warfare. So that same level of hacking, that same level of cybernetic warfare is going to be happening sometime in the future with human bodies, with the human anatomy. And that to me is exceedingly dangerous. And I don't, you know, uh, you know, not to be too d d dystopic about it, but I, I don't, I don't see a way to stop that kind of technology from being produced and, and then being used in a nefarious way. I mean, you, you, once you have the technology to create nanobots, you, you can't, you know, it's not like something that you can, you can detect easily. I'm sure they'll create scanners and all kinds of things that, that, that can detect the nanobots. But, but as I said, you could aerosolize, uh, you, you could aerosolize the nanobots and, and spray a whole community and, and program those nanobots to do God knows what, 
You know, I mean, like you were saying, swarm up into the brain and ch- and change the function of the brain, and and do all kinds of things. And 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 as I talk about these these different these disparate elements of transhumanism, it's very, um, it's like a big mess in my brain because there are so many different technologies in play, um, and they all and and all of these different technologies they they cross they all cross over into each other yeah. at some point, and it's and it's almost impossible for me to conceptualize the amalgamation of these technologies. And that's why the future is called the age that we're in, or some of them believe that we're entering the hybrid age, because it's we're, we're seeing the hybridization of all these technologies coming together. And when these technologies come together, it's, I mean, considering these technologies, each one separate is mind blowing. But when you think about what can be done when you pull them all together, when you have genetic modifications available in the for commercial use or military application then you have the nanobot technology that 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 can do all kinds of things then you have the cybernetics you have the neuralink and you have the implants and you have the the different cybernetic technologies that are going to enhance human capabilities beyond what the, the genetics can do i mean we're going to get enhanced uh, capabilities through genetic modification at some point in the future and as i talk about in my book there is a future human enhancement market, commercial market that's coming. And so we are going to see, and I don't know if you agree with me, but we are going to see at some time in the near future, and I don't know when, everybody's always off on their predictions as when sure. these things are going to unfold. I mean, we were supposed to get the singularity by 2025, if I, if I remember, correct? Uh, um, it's, he's pretty much, you know, Ray Kurzweil has hung around 2045, 2049, that that's but you know, I what think he originally had, though isn't isn't that isn't he had, didn't what he had, just what, that because wasn't predi- it? Yeah, uh, but what he was what he's really predicted um, for, you know, it, it also ranges twenty twenty five twenty thirty. Uh, now it's I think he's landed at twenty thirty, but that's artificial general intelligence. That's a basically uh, you know a computer simulation of a human brain, but with computer so, speed. So that's pre singularity. Yeah, I mean, the singularity as a concept, you know, just for the audience, you know, the, the, the singularity is simply that moment in time uh, when technology has advanced so that it is outside of our ability to predict its behavior and therefore outside of our control. And there's really no way to see beyond the singularity as to what will happen. Uh, it's, you know, it's taken from the notion, the same, you know, the mathematical or the mathematical singularity or, you know, in physics, uh, the, the notion of, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of event horizon uh, after which you can't, you can't calculate or see what's happening. And so the technological singularity, as it's articulated by uh, Verna Vinja and uh, Verna Vinja and Ray Kurzweil, is just a moment of you know, convergence, technological convergence, beyond which there is simply no way to predict what will happen because human beings aren't going to be capable of controlling or comprehending it. The reason why I'm, I, I asked you about nanotechnology and the reason why I'm highlighting this, this emerging market, right, this commercial market for human modification, genetic, nanotech, everything, right? The, the, the Neuralink, everything, body, mind, and soul, basically. At some point in the future, we are going to be able to willfully modify ourselves uh, to such a degree that we are, for all intents and purposes, no longer going to be the human species. And that is, that is in fact, 
um, the way I view transhumanism, it's, it is a transition. The, the word transition is in, it's, it's the, the notion of transition. The idea of a transition is built into the word. And that transition implies that we're going from, we're going from human beings to something other than human beings. We are, in their, men, in their mind, we are transcending a homo sapien. We're becoming humanity 2.0, homo deus, the God-man. And, and, and not just, maybe, maybe it's just going to be available for the elite. You know, there's some scenarios out there that I've seen in articles I've read that this technology is being developed, but it's only going to be in the hands of the elite, the, 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 the super rich, um, and that they're going to transcend, that they're going to consciously evolve into like these uh, superhuman Sith Lord level dictators that are going to, you know, be they're going to have their compound on Mars or something and be and be, you know, like the movie Elysium. They're going to have their their all of their technology somewhere on the on the moon or something like that. And the rest of us are going to be living in squalor. But then the, the, other, uh, the other possibility is that all these technologies are going to be available to the general public. And I think that's where we're going. Um, and certainly the elite are always going to have access to everything first. I mean, all technologies start off really expensive and inaccessible to the masses and then gradually come down. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a function of Moore's law. And so right now, we have some of these technologies that we're talking about uh, that are very likely already being used to some extent um, by some of the elite who have the money, who have the connections, who can, who can, who are willing to to do experiment on their bodies to try and attain life extension or eternal life. But um, I tend to believe, from my perspective, and maybe I'm wrong, I could be dead wrong about this, but I tend to believe that we're going to see a, we're going to see all of these technologies enter the um, enter the commercial sector at some point in the future. And the reason why I'm so confident in that is because I see the trajectory of space travel. I see the trajectory of space tourism. You know, if there was one thing that was completely out of reach for for regular citizens, for people who weren't uber rich, it was to go in space. But if and they will succeed, I was going to say if uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk succeed. In building, basically, I think in the beginning it's going to start off as people just going for joy rides, um, like William Shatner did recently with Jeff Bezos on Jeff Bezos' uh, phallic-shaped uh, rocket. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but you know that'll be how it starts, and it'll be the uber rich, and it'll be the celebrities and the politicians who get to go and do that. But I think I think that the idea is to build a, a space station, a, a hotel in orbit, basically, and gradually bring the price down so that space tourism becomes accessible. It'll still be expensive, of course, but ultimately, I think it will become accessible to the, to the masses. And I believe that these technologies, that these, these, uh, these biotechnologies are going to follow the same course. In the beginning, they're going to be available only to the elite, only to the super rich, and gradually they're going to become accessible to the masses. Now, uh, you know, uh, just uh, the metaverse is a, a clear indication of that, right? Like virtual reality, there have been pretty decent virtual reality systems around for a while. Uh, but, you know, once they worked out some of the smaller bugs, especially like, you know, tracking and being able to keep you from getting nauseous, um, it, you saw the, the, the Oculus begin to be marketed. And then, you know, of course, Mark Zuckerberg tried anyway to snatch up the name Metaverse. I mean, he'll have Meta, but everyone knows that the Metaverse 
football and preceded him. But you, you are seeing that there, that, you know, average kids, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's not quite Nintendo level yet. It's still Sega Genesis while everybody else has Nintendo. Uh, <laughs> but I guess I should say like middle-class kids who have a decent home can afford to have virtual reality that was only dreamt of in, you know, even like the early 2000s. You mentioned something that's really important that a lot of people don't think about when they think about transhumanism, and that is eugenics. Eugenics is at the heart of this thing, because what's going to happen when these technologies become accessible, and even even if they only become accessible to the elite, this will still apply. But especially if these technologies become accessible to the general public, you you are going to have a new social caste system. And uh, I'm going to, I write about in the book and I, and I can't say it better than I wrote it. So I'm just going to read a quick paragraph here and I want to get your commentary on this. What, what, if, if you think that this is a reasonable conclusion that I make, that I draw in, in, in my book, the social caste of the future will be composed of two groups, which we shall designate as Neo, new humans and Nia, Neanderthalic humans. As the neo-humans will be physically and intellectually superior to the neo-humans, they will occupy the most important positions in society and govern the affairs of state. Because they are unwilling or unable to evolve, neo-humans will be viewed with contempt, the vestigial refuse of human evolution, and ultimately eliminated from the social body. And you and I were talking uh, yesterday about we're already sort of seeing this reality unfold on a much lesser scale with uh, with the coronavirus vaccines, with the with the uh, with the mandates and so forth. And I, I was watching a video today, and I, I caught a quick clip of a guy talking about something to do with the vaccines, and he refer, he referred to people who refuse to take the vaccine as plague rats. I mean, that's 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 pretty despicable that you yeah. would, that 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 you would consider other people who make a personal medical choice that many of them likely made with their doctors, that those people would be referred to as plague rats and looked at as plague rats. And and I know that people might say that's just hyperbole. I'm telling you, that's the way a lot of people on the left view uh, the unvaccinated right now, literally as plague rats, as as vermin. So, and this is just, and we're just talking about a a leaky vaccine, right? We're just talking about... um, a, a, a leaky vaccine for a for for a a mostly mild illness for most people for the vast majority of the populace right certainly not deadly for the ma- vast majority of the populace where are we going to be when you have a faction of society who i who i denominate as nea humans neanderthalic humans who refuse to evolve and who are are seen as the refuse of evolution, the, a drag on the societal and, and biological evolution of the human species. Um, the vitriol that, that is going to be aimed at these people, we're seeing the beginning of it right now. We're, we're getting just a brief glimpse of the vitriol, of the hostility that's in store for people in the future, maybe my kids, maybe my grandkids, maybe my great-grandkids, who elect to remain human, who elect to to remain homo sapien who don't want to evolve who don't want to um relinquish the trademarks that make them human genetic and otherwise and psychological everything that make us human um these people and i say these people again 
these might be our kids or our grandkids or our great grandkids. These people will not be able to compete in university. They probably won't even be allowed in, in the university. They won't be able to uh, have positions of, of authority in government uh, or important positions in corporations because they simply won't be able to compete. They won't have, they won't, they won't be uh, hooked up to uh, Neuralink. They won't be interfacing with the internet with their brains. They won't have the uh, enhancement upgrades, the cybernetic upgrades or the genetic upgrades. What happens to that group of people in the future? Yeah. And, it, you know, going back to the notion of, you know, bio eugenics versus cultural eugenics, that's really where you see the fusion, right? They, they, you know, the technological aspect is seen as an extension of the biological and therefore technological advantage is, in essence, you know, an evolutionary advantage. And Homo Deus, the, you know, the book, Yuval Noah Harari, that was one of the, the dire warnings uh, that he puts forth, and I, I agree, you know, with the possibility of it for sure, and I especially agree with your comparison with the current, you know, Vax mandate drive. It really does give you an insight into what sort of mentality drives the medical authorities and the governments who enforce their dictates, and the universities and corporations who enforce their dictates. And, you know, it shows that regardless of demonstrable failures in their technological system to live up to its promises, in this case, you know, the mRNA gene therapy, it shows their defiance of public will. It shows their cruelty especially in regard to, you know, their, their kind of their foot, their, their, their cultural foot soldiers, the kind of people who would call you a plague rat for not having a vaccine. Uh, and it shows just in general the arrogance that they have and the, the inability uh, to see how flawed ultimately their perfect system is and always will be. You know, I, I oftentimes say I'm, not, I'm honestly I'm not worried about the matrix I'm worried about idiocracy. Uh, it's in the attempt to create a perfect <laughs> world that things really go wrong. And, um, you know, in the case of the vaccine, people's livelihoods have been crushed. There are all sorts of cities across America and certainly across the world where you literally can't participate in society unless you have your papers or your QR code to prove that you have, you have, you've had your immune system upgraded. And that is for, and that is, that is in fact a step in this direction because you can't participate in society. And, and, and thank God that there's a lot of pushback against this now. They didn't get as far as they wanted to get. And by them, I mean the globalists who want to push the Great Reset. Um, we're already seeing that you can't participate in society in Australia, for example, and, and, and in Canada and in, in other parts. Or New, of the, New York and L.A. Or New York and L.A. Exactly. Chicago. You can't participate in society. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't, in some cases, go to school, go to university. Um, and, and, and go about these, the, 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 the menial tasks of your life, of your everyday life, unless you inject a pharmaceutical into your body. If that isn't the first step on this road to, to this new caste system, then, then I don't know what is. It, it certainly is. And people make the argument, well, you got to have these vaccines 
uh, to go to go to school, right? You got to get the 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 what do they call the 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 measles, like mumps, the MMR, and, the MMR vaccine uh, to go to school and so forth. But this is unprecedented. The way that these vaccines were were the 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 way that they were rushed, the way that they're being pushed on us. I mean, we've never seen the, the kind of this kind of propagandizing for no. anything else ever. Ever, you know, one one other parallel that comes to mind, um, and it's something you know, I am a bit of a luddite, uh, and I am a bit nostalgic. But in order to succeed in a university system, you really aren't going to be able to do so without a laptop, uh, and you're not going to be able to succeed without competency in some of the most basic technologies that you're required to use: email, uh, web search journal, you know, other sort of database search engines, uh, word processors, things like this. Now, look, I use a word processor. I use all those things. But I think that the push in universities towards using technologies to mediate the educational process, and in particular, the push towards e-learning, pure e-learning, where students are using, you know, from home their laptops to to study material through, you know, videoed lectures or, you know, some of the more, you know, kind of tacky choose your own adventure study programs. Now, if you decide tomorrow that you want to study, uh, you know, or a, a young man, a young woman wants to study in the traditional mode with face-to-face -face lectures and education, person-to-person -person mentorship, uh, you know, reading books uh, deeply, using paper and pencil. It's not that these things are outlawed. It's just that you, if you decide that you want to use some sort of traditional mode, you might as well try to look for schools in the Amish communities or something like that. You're not going to make it. And it's sort of de facto. And, and, and it's really a matter of both your ability to survive in a society that's evolving around you, but it's also a matter of status. I know from using a flip phone that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who look down upon this flip phone and wonder what's, what's wrong with you, what drugs you're selling. Um, and it's, it's really like a fine phone, fine new iPhone is a status symbol that shows that you not only have the wealth to procure one, uh, but you have the sort of, uh, you know, tech savvy, you, you have the acumen to use one, right? Like the, you have all these new abilities and powers with your shiny new iPhone. Now, all of this might seem kind of mundane and trivial, but I really don't. I, I think the the idea that you're you're driving at this this sort of technocratic elite that employs advanced technology and both against the population or just simply for themselves so that they then move up and away from, you know, the kind of standard baseline population. I think that that's already happening uh, and it's already happening in, in meaningful ways. But, you know, as far as a brain chip, um, you know, we'll see what happens. If, if I imagine that the infections alone will probably reduce the status of brain chips. We'll yeah, see but, what yeah, but this is where, this is where, this is where, you talk about brain chips, but then when you add in the nanotechnology to repair, so, so I think, yeah, sure. Damage, I, I think I mean, uh, it just depends on you know which one. Like, uh, I, I I really think already you you have you know no parent wants to have a child with Down syndrome, um, and now it's very easy to identify Down syndrome and abort the baby beforehand. Um, you know the whole concept of liber liberal eugenics really uh, is driven by. 
legal and readily available abortions so that you can do genetic testing or other testing beforehand and you kind of, you know, call, actively call the gene pool. Uh, same with neuro enhancements of, of various sorts. I, th I think that, um, you know, the non-invasive brain-computer interfacing will become first very popular. And then in many cases, uh, like, it, it first will be like probation and in prisons, it will be mandatory. You will have to subject to non-invasive, you know, uh, either, either um, transcranial magnetic, uh, you know, detection or stimulation, depending on how far it goes. Uh, but all of these technologies are on the cusp. I mean, right now you have non-invasive, you know, uh, both brain scanners and also uh, stimulators, which are used for various purposes. They're they're fairly rare, but they're readily available if you've got the money and, and the desire for them. And I think that you're going to see a, that spread dramatically. And, uh, you know, even like robotics, like right now, if you go to someone's home and they don't have a dishwasher, you know, they don't have a refrigerator, they don't have any of these technologies, obviously you immediately are like either what's wrong with you mentally or are you poor um, unless you come to my house and then you just know it's because I'm a Luddite. Uh, I have a refrigerator, by the way. Uh, but, um, you know, I think smart technologies uh, will slowly but surely they already are in many ways but slowly but surely they'll they'll creep into kind of normal middle class life like you're saying and just it will largely be driven by status right now the vaccine you remember the vaccine it really is an amazing microcosm at the beginning it was a it was a status symbol you chose to roll your sleeve up you took your picture with your card, you know, you've got your Band-Aid, you give it the thumbs up, and uh, everybody was really proud of themselves for being vaxxed, and everybody was shaming everyone who was not vaxxed. And now uh, it moved very rapidly in less than a year to if you're not vaccinated, you can't go to the university, you can't go to the bar, you can't go to the theater, uh, you can't get on the plane in some places, you can't get on the train in some places, you know, like Australia, you can't leave your home. So, you know, it, it, to the extent that's a microcosm, I don't, you can imagine it a thousand different ways, but uh, I, I, it's not hard to foresee a day in 10 years even, or 20 years in which certain, uh, certain concessions to the techno culture will be required, will be required in order to uh, participate in, or especially to advance in society. And it's already underway and those extremes, I think are definitely going to appear sooner than later. There are some 10,000 or more genetic disorders in the gene pool of the human species. We now know that through genetic modification, specifically using CRISPR-Cas9 technology, that we can eliminate some of these, certain yeah. kinds of heart disease and so forth. We're, we're already seeing the success uh, with CRISPR-Cas9. And CRISPR-Cas9 is only, it's a rudimentary tool. It's not the best we have. We're developing things that I think are going to be much more powerful. You and I have talked in the past about human artificial chromosomes that, the, that the DARPA was developing years ago. And I think we can assume that they probably made some headway um, uh, since the beginning of that project. And human artificial chromosomes, unlike CRISPR-Cas9, which is, which is very finite, you can go in and you can snip certain parts of DNA, any DNA. You can go in and snip and make small insertions. Um, whereas a human artificial chromosome, you can go in and, and affect much larger segments of the DNA, maybe groups of genes together, because genes don't just work independently. They work as a collective. A very, our, our genome was much more complex, I think, than, than we originally thought. 
But the point is this, um, with all these genetic uh, disorders floating around in the gene pool, what happens when we start to use genetic technology, uh, genetic modification to start to weed some of these out of the gene pool? And um, and you you can have human to human uh, gene therapy where you take a a where you take somebody has a a defective gene that's mutated and you you go and you take the, the same gene from somebody who has the correct copy of that gene and you splice it in and you and basically it's human to human you are correcting the human genome with a portion of the human genetic code but what happens when when we start to get a little bit more uh, chimeric with our gene splicing. And we start realizing that certain animals have certain genes that are very useful to humans and that we can splice into our genome to, uh, uh, to correct some of these genetic disorders. Remember there's, there's probably much more than 10,000, um, genetic disorders floating around mutations floating around the human gene pool. So what's my point? My point is this, (laughs) You're going to have a group of people at some point in the future. And again, we're just talking about genetics right now. We're just talking about the genetic technology, discarding all the rest of the technologies that are that are that are that are growing, um, that are that are that are developing in, in in tandem with the genetic technologies. What happens when you and I, as the luddites that we are, or our children, say, "You know what? I don't want." to have a raccoon gene spliced into my genome to get rid of this genetic disorder in the human gene pool. Well, we're going to look at we're going to be looked at as the propagators of that disorder. We are the yeah. plague rats. We're going to be going around propagating our genes. This gets right back to eugenics because I can envision a time in which they say to people like us or our children or our grandchildren, "Okay, fine. You don't have to get this genetic upgrade." You don't have to fix this this part of the genome that's causing this genetic disorder in, in the general in the in, in the collective gene pool of the human species. Fine, that's fine, but you're not allowed to have children. You're not allowed to propagate that. I mean, we've already seen it. We we just came through the 20th century, right? We just saw that yeah. unfold with Nazi Germany, um, and we're seeing the enthusiasm right now. This in enthusiasm by mostly people on the left to to segregate us from society those of us who don't want to elect not to be vaccinated to ostracize us to uh what what were they saying in the media it's time to shame these people yes and 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 believe me that if, if this is again let's remind ourselves this this is all of this is happening um this is all revolving around a virus that is 98% survivable for most people. What happens when we're dealing with heart disease? What happens when we're dealing with cancer? What happens when we're dealing with other um, terminal illnesses that are in the gene pool? And that if we don't get the genetic upgrades, the genetic enhancements, that then we're going to continue to propagate these these disorders in, in the human collective, in the collective gene pool. Um, that's not science fiction. I keep saying this because it's true. It's not science fiction. It's coming. And if we think that these people are losing their minds over a virus uh, and a vaccine, just wait until the implications are the the implications are 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 much weightier, are 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 much grander. Implications for the whole species, for the development of the species, the eradication of genetic disorders. 
Um, you know, there's a there's a really good a, a example. It's it's a, a parallel, right? That shows that intention to perfect or improve human beings through technology. Uh, and while it's not genetic, it's phenotypic in nature. Uh, it gives you an idea of the lengths that certain technocratic-minded people are willing to go to. And it's a program called 1,000 Days. It's funded by a, a, a group, a, a, an NGO, Welcome Leap. I'm sorry, Welcome Group is the group. Welcome Leap is the initiative. And uh, they've poured money into uh, a ton of different experimental uh, laboratories to, to try to find these kind of quasi-transhumanist procedures to improve human life. It's always to improve human life. Uh, including, uh, you know, the rapid development of mRNA vaccines. But in this particular one, uh, 1, 000, uh, the first 1,000 days, basically the procedure is to fit infants with sensors uh, all over their bodies, uh, you know, in these little kind of, you know, cyber pajamas and monitor their movements, monitor the sounds that they make, uh, monitor their attention, uh, where their eyes are looking, all of this. And the purpose is, you know, this, the first 1,000 days, this this kind of one-person one surveillance system is intended to go on for about three years and like a little mini Truman show. And the purpose is to gauge uh, the uh, neurological development of the executive function, you know, the, the control center and prefrontal cortex. And... It's intended to help children who typically wouldn't have the self-control of an ideal child to help them develop executive function. And, uh, you know, the first wave is to get, uh, you know, to be able to make a really good model in silico of the brain, of the child's brain. Uh, that then, will, that model will be used in, in, in all of these models of all the children will be used in the aggregate to both uh, create a more detailed map of the brain as it develops, in particular the executive function, but also, you know, secondarily to develop better artificial intelligence systems by having better maps of, of you know, a developing mind because artificial intelligence is, you know, as, as we spoke about, as you said many times, you know, artificial intelligence is a mind and kind of infant mind in development as it is right now. So going back to the babies, though, the idea is that you will take all of these infants in the aggregate and you'll identify those who have trouble, who are having trouble developing executive function and those who are not, and you will construct a sort of digital benchmark uh, towards which children are going to be encouraged to uh, progress towards. And the implication is, I mean, you know, in, in the uh, proposal itself, they said 80% of children uh, if we can get to 80% of children and stop, you know, the stunted development of the executive function, then we will have succeeded. I don't know if they mean, they they weren't clear. Did they mean 80% of children within a certain population in the UK where Welcome Group is based? Uh, or do they mean 80% of children worldwide? I don't know. All I know is that any normal person uh, would balk at the notion of having their baby fitted with sensors uh, to develop their cognitive function, 
you know, for, for more than a week, let's say, right? I mean, we're talking about steady monitoring for three years. And, uh, you know, so on the one hand, it, it shows the complete disconnection that the, the kinds of people who develop these programs, Regina Dugan is at the head of this, by the way, you know, former DARPA, former Google, former Facebook, uh, World Economic Forum Connected. And, um, you know, it shows the disconnect they have for normal people who simply just want to hold their babies and hope for the best. And uh, the insistence on control. And, you know, you talk about like, well, what if, what if you have, uh, you know, a mutation that they've detected and you're about to have a child and they're like, oh, well, there's a chance that your child won't develop, uh, you know, proper executive function due to this certain mutation that tends towards, you know, uh, stunted pre, you know, prefrontal cortex development. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know. Nobody really knows. It depends really on public sentiment. Nobody really knows how long it's going to be before that sort of thing is so fiercely dis discouraged that you're kind of like carted off and given an abortion and you know brought back and like, good luck trying again. Uh, but certainly, you know, in, in, you look at social services as they exist now for poorer people. Or if you look at, um, you know, the sort of like the corporate life coach sort of sector where people are trying to sell you the means to your perfect life, um, I, I really don't see it being that far off the mark that some number of people within the next five to, to you know, 10 years are, you know, pressured into or subjected to something like that. Maybe not that in particular, but, you know, you will be seen as a freak and your children will be seen as freaks if you are you know, averse to constant surveillance. Uh, you'll be seen as freaks if, you're, if, if you eschew the sort of you know, bio-digital convergence that you see just with the, the standard smartphone now or whatever, whatever the next level may be. Um, you know, and as te technology improves, as it's you know, shown to be beneficial in some ways, um, and as it kind of aggregates, uh, I, I don't, man, I don't see it being too far off. There's no way to predict the exact contours, but I think that the general thesis that we're moving towards a future in which a technocratic elite is given, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, you know, godlike powers over the rest of us. And the rest of us are expected to adhere to pretty much any technological paradigm that's put on us in order to be accepted as just peons, let alone to be, you know, to move up in the ranks. And in fact, I, you know, as, as mentioned with, uh, you know, just digital technology in schools, or if you look at the way in which Silicon Valley controls both corporate life and governmental life and personal life in America and around the world now, it's, it's already there. It's just a matter of which, how extreme that division will be and how, you know, really sci-fi oriented the technologies will be that are used by these elites or the technologies we're expected to subject ourselves to. Well, that's sounding a whole lot like the Book of Revelation and the Mark of the Beast. Um, it doesn't it, though. Let me end this, uh, this conversation, Joe, with, with another quote from your article. And this is a quote from Max Moore. Join me, join Lucifer, and join Extropy in fighting God and his entropic forces with our minds, our wills, and our courage. Reality is fundamentally on our side, forward into the light. 
Uh, Joe, where can people find you? How do people get connected with you? Where, where, can, where can people access these, these amazing articles you've been writing? Uh, well, you know, the first place to look, uh, warroom.org, hit the transhumanism tab. There is a, a, a decent collection of some of the more essential pieces that I've done. Uh, you can find uh, some of the more current work at joebot.xyz. That's jobot.xyz or my social media, Twitter and Gitter at joebotxyz. Follow Joe on social media. Read his articles; they're excellent. And and follow the War Room with Steve Bannon. I mean, it's the yeah, most. I should ins- definitely say, uh, yeah, War Room pandemic with Steve Bannon. Uh, every week, you'll find me on there two, three times a week. So. I watch you guys almost every day. I think Bannon's got some of the most insightful political analysis out there. So if you're not following the War Room pandemic, go follow the War Room pandemic. Okay, we're gonna wrap it, Joe. Thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, Timothy has been fantastic. Thank you very much. Come join me and Joe Ellen in Nashville, Tennessee from the 6th through the 7th of May at the Birthright Conference, where we will be delving even deeper into the topic of transhumanism and other associated topics such as aliens, UFOs, and Bible prophecy. Tickets to the conference are now on sale at a 20% discount. Hurry over to my website, timothyalbrino.com, or follow the link in the description of this video to secure your tickets today.